0: So if I was to ask you to answer this question, what does a Christian look like, my guess would be a couple of things in response. The first is that we would have some standard responses. Most of us identify as followers of Jesus and we have some sort of biblical worldview and that would inform uh, some of our answers and make them, you know, there'd be a common thread through our answers. But I also suspect uh, a second thing uh, uh, that w- would be true, and that there would be a, a, a wildly different answers when it comes to the activity of Christians. Uh, some people would say, well, you know, a Christian is somebody who tells people about Jesus, Others would say a Christian is someone who, who helps the downtrodden and oppressed. Some, some would say a Christian is someone who, who is financially generous. Uh, a Christian is someone who attends church on a regular basis. There would be all kinds of answers in and around the activity of Christians. And my thesis is that, that the answer to that question would be centered on our personal preferences of the things that we find. More, most important for a Christian to be doing. Now, here's the thing. All of those things are actually, in a sense, true. Christians do tell people about Jesus. We do uh, uplift the downtrodden and oppressed. We, we, we are financially generous. We do attend churches. But none of those things really is an answer to the question of, what does a Christian look like? And the reason is because being a Christian is not an activity, and looking like a Christian is not an activity either. And so what we're going to do is, over the course of the next 10 weeks, is we're going to look at a famous passage of Scripture in Galatians called, The Fruit of the Spirit. And this passage moves past the activities that so many of us are concerned about to the heart of what a Christian is and what a Christian looks like. And so what we're going to do is this week we're going we're, we're to do uh, an overview. We're going to kind of fly over the whole thing. And then over the next nine weeks, uh, we're going to look at, the, at at nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. And so if you have a Bible with you, uh, find your way to uh, Galatians chapter 5. You'll also find the text on uh, page 8 of your worship guide. I'm going to pray And then we're going to look at this passage together in Galatians 5. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we look at this idea of the fruit of the Spirit, that you would give us a picture of what it is that a follower of Jesus looks like. That as we work through this, that we would be people who'd love you more and more. That you'd conform us more and more into the likeness of the Lord Jesus. And that you would turn us inside out in our posture toward other people. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Galatians 5, starting at verse 13. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You see, the whole premise of Galatians, the whole premise of this letter here that Paul wrote is is this, that Jesus has set you free. And because Jesus has set you free, you are called to be and live as a free person. And I want you to let that settle in for a second, because when you get that, it changes everything. And so many followers of Jesus don't feel free. So many people look at Christians, and they don't think that they are free people, but we are called to be free. Free from what? Well, inside each one of us, we have a fallen nature. And that fallen nature demands obedience to live in ways that are fundamentally unloving. But Jesus has set us free from that sin nature so that we can love. And outside of us, Satan, who is a very real supernatural being, he exists. He coaxes and and tempts us again to to be self-focused and unloving, but Jesus has set us free from Satan. And then all around us, we live in a world that is itself broken and pressing in on us. But Jesus has set us free from that pressure. What that means is if you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you believe in him, you have been set free. Because Jesus lived a sinless life because he died, because he was buried, because he rose again from the grave and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. You are set free. Your sin nature's been crucified, Satan has been defeated, and the broken world around you will one day be made new and restored. You are totally free, and you are called to live and love like a free person. But here's the rub. The way we tend to think about freedom is it's all about me. Free means I can do whatever I want. But that's not freedom. In fact, Paul here in this passage would call that facade an opportunity for the flesh. What does that mean? Well, we have this flesh, and it doesn't mean our physical body. It means the sin nature part of us, and we all have this. And he says we can give our flesh an opportunity to abuse the freedom that Jesus has given us. And there is a sense in which you can can kind of do what you want because there are no strings attached. When Jesus set you free, there are no strings attached. You can do what you want. But but what we'll see in this passage is someone who's placed their faith in Jesus, what you want will change. It's going to start to change. Instead of living for me, for self, we begin to live for we. And I know that's grammatically incorrect, but I wanted it to rhyme. Let me read this passage Again, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. See what he says? He says we are to serve one another in love. That we are to love our neighbor as ourself. Does that sound familiar? Well, That was like the core of the Mosaic law that God gave to the Israelites. They were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love their neighbor as as themselves. And and Jesus then says later on that that's that's the greatest of all commandments. And so this entire discourse about the fruit of the Spirit starts here. He says the Spirit is going to do something in you. And there's, and there's a way to abuse the freedom that you have in Jesus or to use the freedom that you have in Jesus. You can make it about yourself and do whatever you want and then abiding and devouring one another. Or you can make it about God and about others and loving your neighbor as yourself, which is your true calling. That's the setup. Now, Paul, the guy who wrote this, he makes a, a pivot. He says, but I say, in other words... That's why I had to go over all of that, right? Because because he's basing the next thing he's about to say on the thing that he just said. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. What he's basically saying here is you were called to be free. And yet you now have these two paths in front of you. A way to abuse the freedom that you have in Christ. Or to use what you have in Christ for the sake of loving others. And inside you, you've got two voices yelling at you. And they each are telling you to take a different path. They're opposed to one another. They desire different things. And that means you have this decision to make on a daily basis. Am I going to walk this or am I going to walk this? The flesh or the spirit. Where the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Do you see what he's he's saying? He's saying your desires as a follower of Jesus are going to begin to change. And you're going to feel that battle. Because every time you walk down that path of flesh, you're going to go, this just doesn't feel right. Right? It's like you know. Because your desires are changing. Your heart is changing. The Holy Spirit is working to change you from from inside of you. And so Paul's challenge here is he's like, listen, here's the solution. Walk by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. But what does that actually even mean? You know, Mike, over the the past three weeks, did a a series uh, of messages on the Holy Spirit. And there's so much in Scripture that we learn about the Holy Spirit. In John 15, we're told that the Holy Spirit bears witness about Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians, we're told that the Holy Spirit is our, our comforter. And in Jude, we're told that, 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 that when we don't know how to pray, he's praying for us and helps us to pray. in Titus, we're told that he renews us. And we're told in Romans that he fills us with joy and hope, that he convicts us of our sin and, and points us to Jesus. What that means is the Holy Spirit is God himself. And, and if you're a follower of Jesus, he indwells He dwells inside of you actively, and he will always point to Jesus. When he's comforting you, he's pointing to Jesus. When he's giving you hope, he's pointing to Jesus. When he's giving you joy, he's pointing to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is always about another. He is pointing us always to Jesus. And there's a passage in Philippians that that a lot of people misquote. and And it talks about the fact that the Holy Spirit will give us peace. And sometimes people say, okay, that means anytime time uh, I'm at peace with something, I know, I know I'm doing the right thing. Have you ever heard someone say that? Problem is, have you ever met someone who feels really at peace about doing something completely wrong? That's the battle inside of us. Often my desires are at odds with what the Holy Spirit wants me to do. So what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? What does it, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Well, look at the last verse I read. It says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. What does that mean? Well, in the Galatians context, he's talking about the Mosaic Law, the the 613 rules and regulations given to the Israelites in the Old Testament that they had to follow. And, And most of us are not running around, although some Christians do, but most of us aren't running around telling everyone Uh, That you've got to follow all of these laws. But what we do is we apply little l laws to our lives. Little l laws are any time we say, I must do this to be accepted by God. I must be, I must do this to be accepted by my family. I must do this to be accepted by my friends. I must Do this to be accepted by culture. Anytime we do that little formula, we are adding a little L law into our lives. And he says, if we are led by the Spirit, we're not under the law. And I I think we can broaden it to all of those laws. So what does this even mean? I, I know that's the third time I've asked the question. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Well, what we'll see is that the answer is not in check boxes, no matter how much we want it to be. We want a list. Give me a plan. Tell me how to walk by the Spirit. Check, 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 check. But that's not we, we, that, uh, what we see. What we see is it's not like that. It's fruit. What we can do is, is look at our lives and see which path we're on based on the fruit in our lives. Now, We have to be really careful because, again, these aren't check boxes. They're a diagnostic tool to help us evaluate which path we're walking. But Paul now gives us two lists. And so what we're going to spend most of our time on this morning is the first list here. And I've got to warn you, this one's a doozy. Uh, here's, Here's the list. Galatians 5, verse 19, it says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what Paul says here is this stuff is evident. It's obvious. He says this is obviously out of step with, with the Spirit. In other words, this is baseline Christian teaching, right? For a, a follower of Jesus, this is, this is the basic stuff that we shouldn't even have to argue about. Scripture is clear on this. And all of these things have at their center, you'll notice, self. They are the path of self. And I've taken this long list and broken it into four categories. Sexual sin, Religious sin, relational sin, and party sin. Okay, so let's look at them quickly. Sexual sin. This is an easy category, but a hard category to hear uh, in our culture. Because this is what our culture tells us right now. Our culture tells us sexuality is all about self-orientation. It's about self-expression. It's about being self-directed. That, that, the core of our sexuality is me. We're also told in our culture that to be truly fulfilled, one must be sexually active. Not only that, one must be sexually satisfied. And I would actually challenge every single one of those assumptions from a scriptural basis. I would challenge us that sex is, according to Scripture, a gift and a joy, but it's not an end. If it's an end, it would actually say that there was something deficient about Jesus who was single. Or about vast swaths of single people who are not married and have never been over the course of their life. And in fact, the Apostle Paul actually goes so far as to say it it would actually be better for us to be single. So what is a non-self-oriented sexual worldview? It it says that we are focused on others. Not others, other. Um, Dr. Nate Collins, he says, the Christian worldview is that we are monosexual. What means our orientation is toward one person, one spouse inside of our covenant marriage. And we are focused on them, we are focused on their satisfaction, their needs, not our own. There's a report that I saw just this past week that actually says the followers of Jesus who regularly attend church actually report the highest sexual satisfaction numbers of anyone in our culture. If anyone tells you that the Bible is restrictive on these things, we report a higher satisfaction than the rest of culture. So that's the broad category. Let's quickly look at the three words that he uses. He says sexual immorality. This is the Greek word porneia, which, from which we get our, uh, our word porn, and it's just a junk drawer term for any sexual expression outside of a covenant marriage relationship. And it's interesting, Paul starts there, and then he moves to impurity. Well, what's impurity? Well, that's Unclean thoughts, words, and deeds. In other words, dirty mind, dirty mouth, right? And notice how those two things are, are linked together and they're very self-oriented. If you think that, that, that you need to be self-satisfied with your sexuality, you're going to be constantly thinking about it, constantly talking about it, and it's going to flow out from there. Sensuality, which I think is better translated as some, um, some, re- some translations render as promiscuity or, or debauchery. Now this may seem uh, to, like it's the same thing, but it's all building on one another. Promiscuity or debauchery in Greek context means someone who is open and brazen and flaunting sexual immorality. And again, this is all obvious. It's it's it, we're we you know if we're supposed to be oriented toward one person, our spouse, with our sexuality, then anything outside of that, flaunting that, would be, would obviously be a sin. Let's move to the, the second category, religious sin. He says idolatry. This is any time we put anything in our, in, in our lives and, and, and put it on the throne in, instead of Jesus. And a lot of times, the stuff that we put on the throne instead of Jesus is really good stuff, right? Our career aspirations, even relationships, or our, our kids, or success. We tend to put those things on the, the throne of our lives, and they're great things. They're just terrible gods. That's idolatry. And then sorcery. Uh, most of us are like, well, we can skip that one, right? Well, it's interesting. This is, this, is the, this is the Greek word pharmakeia, which is where we get our word pharmacy, and it was drug-induced worship. And, and in our day and age, you may think you don't have to talk about that, but listen, there are still person, you know, people around who will say stuff like, hey, man, I, I, if I take shrooms and worship God, is that better? No. Next the next category is relational sin, and this is the biggest this is the biggest category. This has got the most stuff in it, and, and that makes sense because it's, it, it's about not being about self but being about others. and so let's work our way through this. He says enmity Enmity it is a, a contempt towards someone or something that becomes absolutely all consuming. you know this you know this is something you struggle with when all day, every day, all you can think about is that person or that issue, when that's the only thing that you're ever posting about online, or you, you cannot stand it and you're stuck there. It makes your blood boil. That, that's enmity. He says, strife. That's when the attitude of enmity moves to a clash and a division between people. Jealousy. We're coveting and desiring what others have. It's the fits of anger. This is uncontrolled temper, outbursts, a, a short fuse. We flare up about everything or at any moment. Rivalries or as another translation I think better renders it selfish ambition this is an interesting one because because ambition is actually a good thing it can be it can be a good thing it's a it's a it's morally neutral but selfish ambition is when you're so focused on on what you want and 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 what you want to get and, and, and and your ambitions is so ambitious that you, that you will bulldoze or step over other people in order to get it. And, and that is, according to Paul, an obvious sin. Now I want to talk about these, these next two together because they kind of work together. And I'm concerned about this one a lot in Christian circles. Uh, dissensions, which is sin that blows up relationships and division. This is when people start taking sides against one another. And can I just say... This is the divining, defining sin of the pandemic era. Christians, not the rest of the world. The rest of the world does this too, I don't, but I don't care. Christians have enmity and strife toward one another. And it's led to outbursts of anger. It's led to dissensions and ultimately divisions. And there is no place for this As a follower of Jesus, it's interesting that throughout the the New Testament, Paul has a specific sin he calls out again and again, namely division. And And he says when someone is divisive in a church context, they're to be warned once, warned twice, and then kicked out. I mean, no messing around. He gives a specific checklist. This is how you're to deal with it because divisiveness is so important. It's a big sin. And of course it is. If, if walking in the spirit is focusing on others in love, we should be known as a place where a place, we should be known as a place of diverse views and, and we're able to coexist with one another rather than letting it divide us. Finally, he says, envy. Envy is just jealousy on steroids. It's basically saying, I'm not only jealous of what you have, but I want to take it from you so that you don't have it and that I have it. That, that's, that's envy. Now let's move on to, to party sin. He gives us two things. He, he starts with drunkenness, and I think we all kind of know what drunkenness is. But I, I, I want to make a point here. Having a beer or a glass of wine with dinner, cool, fine. Scripture actually talks about alcohol as a, as a blessing in moderate context. Getting plastered at the bar every weekend, not cool, right? The idea here is a habitual getting drunk. And I think it can apply to other drugs too, where we're constantly under the control of substances. We're self-medicating and we're relying on, on alcohol or drugs or whatever to bring us joy or to hide our pain. And, and that is a self-orienting thing and then he mentions here orgies which might be better translated as carousing because orgies here is not so much a, a, a much sex orgies but but drinking or, orgies and the, the broad context here is when drunkenness turns into an all out you know you know frat party right that that's the carousing and, and 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 by the way these are two examples of good godly things being used in an ungodly way both our sexuality and alcohol are gifts from god but we use them wrongly. And then I love what Paul says. He wraps up this list by saying, oh, and things like these. I mean, he's like, yeah, he's just like riffing on this list, and he's like, oh, yeah, and anything similar to these things. And then he says, I'm warning you about these things, as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That should shake us a little bit. Because he started by saying, all of this is obvious. And then he gave us a list that I guarantee every single one of us can find ourselves somewhere on. And then he says, I'm warning you, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is he saying that this is a checklist, got to do this, can't do this, can't do this, can't do this, and we're in fear of losing our salvation? No, 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 that would be inconsistent with the entire book of Galatians. He's not saying Christians that fall in these areas or, or, or trip up or stumble are at risk of losing their salvation. He's not looking to undermine Christian assurance here, but he's aiming to banish complacency. He's saying that people who are habitually and continually living lives like this without their conscience striking them or any minute change in their life may be betraying that they actually aren't followers of Jesus, that they've never really trusted in him. Because someone who has the Holy Spirit in their lives will show something different in their life over the course of their life. He calls it fruit. Galatians 5, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now I'm going to spend less time on this because for the next nine weeks we're going to cover all of these in depth one at a time. But, but I do want to highlight a couple of things. First it's really important to get the To get that the word fruit in this context is singular. I mean, it's not like love is, you know, like an apple and joy is like a peach and peace is like a banana, right? Like these are, you know, like they're all different fruit. No, this is a fruit. And what he's saying is, this is what God does in your life. This is how the Holy Spirit expresses himself in your life. It is continually, over the course of your life, you become more and more like these things in increasing measure. Let's work our way through these. Love. Gosh, this is our our motivator. This is the path that Jesus has laid out for us. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says, and the greatest of these is love. This is what the Holy Spirit bubbles up inside of us when we give our lives to him. It begins to show more and more in our lives. Joy. This isn't happiness, some kind of fickle happiness. It's that in spite of our circumstances, when things are are not going our way, when life is difficult, we still are able to have a joy because our eyes are fixed on Jesus. Peace, Uh, in Philippians, in that passage that um, people misquote all the time, we're told that, that peace will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the prince of peace, and this isn't just merely the absence of conflict. One way that you can translate peace is completeness. We don't need anything else other than Jesus so we, we can live at peace. When, when things are going crazy all around in our lives, we can be at peace because we have Jesus. Patience, oh can't wait to hit that one. Um, you know what patience literally means? Long suffering. You know what that means? Suffering for a long time. And we tend to think of patience as tolerance but it's, it's much bigger than that. God is patient. He is patient with us not, in not snapping his fingers and wiping us out and throwing us into hell because of our sin. Instead, quite literally, he suffered. Jesus went to the cross to to handle it for us because God is patient toward us. Kindness. This isn't niceness. Niceness is a a middle-class virtue. It's kindness. This is being warm and considerate to others, treating them how Jesus has treated us. Goodness. Integrity. Being the same person in every situation, in public and in private, rather than a phony and a hypocrite. Faithfulness, loyalty, courage to be utterly reliable and true to your word. Gentleness, the display of humility and self-forgetfulness. It's the opposite of feeling superior and being self-absorbed. Self-control, this is that strength of character that leads you to make tough decisions when the fleshly part of you is telling you that you should take a different path. It's the battle inside of you. Now, now I'm not sure if you caught this, you probably did, but the fruit of the Spirit has a very different orientation, doesn't it, than the works of the flesh. The works of the, the flesh are all, about, are all about me. The fruit of the Spirit is all about others, it's all about reflecting Jesus to others. Now, listen to what Paul says about this. He says, against such things, there is no loss. So many people think that the key to pleasing God is, okay, okay. now, now here's what I've, what I've got to do. I've got to get myself up and, and do this stuff. I've got to be more loving. Have you ever tried to force yourself to be more patient? I mean, listen, if I take like an apple and just, you know, and, 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 I, and I nail it, to, to, to this right up here, that doesn't make this an apple tree, right? It is not about forcing fruit onto your life. It is the fact that God has done something in our lives that is producing fruit. Some new fruit. And it's fascinating how often the Bible talks about our spiritual maturity in agricultural terms. I mean, there are a lot of of verses. Let me just give you a a couple in the book of Psalms, for instance. And it says this in Psalm 1 Blessed is the man who walks in the counsel, uh, walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. This is where his delight is. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And then if you are to flip away to the end of your Bible, 1 Peter says this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since, this is why, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. You're going to see over and over and over and over in Scripture, our spiritual maturity It's described in terms of plant. Notice what these two passages just did. The psalmist says that the tree bears fruit that comes from God. Why? Because the roots go down deep through the instruction of the Lord. And Peter says the imperishable seed of the word of God is planted inside of us so that we grow in sincere brotherly love for one another, which is our fruit. And so this is what struck me this week as I was working on this message. Like, why does the Bible use agricultural terms so much to describe our spiritual maturity? Well, well, here's why. Why? Spiritual maturity like a plant is gradual, it is seasonal, and it is subject to its environment. And the only part that we even have a tiny bit of control over is the environment. And we don't have all all the control over that, right? And let's be honest for a second. If you were to check your phone's usage status... How much time would you say you're spending on social media this week? What about BuzzFeed? What about MSNBC? What about Fox News? And how does that compare to your time engaging with the Word? And I don't mean just going to church, I mean spending time talking with people about this stuff, engaging with others in community with the Word of God. See, here's the thing. I fear that many people in the church today are being discipled more by cable news and social media than they are the Bible. Because that's where our roots tend to go down deep. No wonder, no wonder. We're divisive right now. No wonder we have dissensions now. No wonder we have factions now. No wonder we have sexual sin and relational sin and religious sin and party sin. Because our roots are going deep down into the wrong things. And it's obvious because here's what what you do to see which path you are walking on. It's not a checklist. You just look at the path. Is my life described by sexual immorality, enmity, strife, outbursts of anger, dissensions, and divisions? Or is my life described by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? When you begin to see more of one than the other in your life, you know who is discipling you, and you know which path you're walking on. Now, I want to stop here because right now you might be going, oh, man, because this stuff is like a punch in the gut, and I don't want you, I don't want you to be, uh, come to church and be discouraged. That's not my intent, but, because remember what I said. Why, why are we described as agriculture? Because you can only control a, your environment a, a little bit, right? And then there are two other pieces. What are they? Agriculture is gradual, and it's seasonal. That's, that's why you, you can't look at a person and, and check the boxes and see whether they're, they're a Christian or not. You can't look at someone's life and go, I can check all of this stuff off. Because it's going to take time with a lot of us. It's gradual. And we're going to screw up. It's seasonal. And you may have some seasons of your life where, where you have no control over how bad things are and your environment changes quite a bit. Tim Keller says that our spiritual growth is like a teenage pubescent boy. Bear with me here. And it's not about his stinky pits. But, but have you ever seen a boy who, that's like 5'2 and he has like size 12 feet? And, and what do you say about that kid? Eh, he'll grow into it. And the, the rest of his body is going to catch up with the rest. Do you know what happens sometimes? Sometimes God's working on your patience for a long time but the other areas of your life they're they're a mess you'll grow into it this is the promise that we have the holy spirit will do this work in our life. And here's the thing. We're so tempted to go, okay, I need to do better. I need to be better. That's what our society says. It's all over social media. Do better, be better. That's not what the scripture says. Look at verse 24 in this passage in Galatians. It says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. What's the key? Belonging to Jesus. And if you belong to Jesus, you've placed your faith in him, the Holy Spirit lives in you, so just keep in step with him. And here's the thing you're gonna mess up, and it's gonna be okay. You just brush yourself off, keep your eyes on Jesus, keep your mind in his word, and he will turn your heart toward loving people. That's why, way back in verse 16, Paul can say definitively, I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will certainly not gratify the desires of your flesh. See what he's saying? It's a foredrawn conclusion. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And he's going to transform you. So that the fruit of the Spirit is more and more and more evident. And it's going to take a long time. And you are are not going to see it completely. Until the day... That day in glory when you're face to face with Jesus. And then finally, you're synced up with him. Let's let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank